You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are continuing our discussion today on the topic of women in waterfowl. We, we had on a previous episode a, a focus mostly on women in the profession of waterfowl, of wetland conservation. We have three outstanding guests joining us on that episode, and they're, they're joining us again. And they each shared their experiences, each coming from sort of different stages in their career and sharing their perspectives and how they may have varied in, in response to that. We're going to continue that discussion today. We're going to touch on a few additional topics beyond just the professional aspect of of being a woman in this field. And notably, we're going to start out with a discussion related to women in waterfowl hunting and what that's like. But then later on, we're going to transition to a discussion about some of the other initiatives that are actually underway to promote gender diversity within the natural resources field, within the waterfowl field. So we're going to be happy to bring those to you. And then we'll conclude, of, of course, with some additional advice from, from these three amazing guests on, on all aspects of this topic. So with that, I'm happy to welcome back in our guest on this show, Dr. Susan ellis Feligi from University of North Dakota. Susan, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. And Dr. Carla Gwynn, the Chief Exe- Executive Officer for Ducks Unlimited Canada. Carla, welcome back. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. And Casey Setash, a PhD student at Colorado State University. Casey, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. We have a lot to get to, so we're going to jump right into it. The first thing I will say, though, is to remind people that may have missed the previous episode. Number one, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. Lots of great information there. But the other is that we are, are well aware 
that this conversation we're having now about gender diversity in this profession, in society, in any aspect of, of what we do is not independent of a larger discussion of diversity and inclusion among broader societal components and groups that make up our society. So we clearly recognize that. We're having a discussion here focused on gender diversity in this in waterfowl and waterfowling because it's something that is that has been on our mind for a number of uh, a number of years, a number of months here with respect to the podcast. We're seeing some good progress within this field in respect to gender diversity. And so we wanted to share some of those specific stories with you. We will have an opportunity in the future to expand this discussion related to diversity and inclusion. So just wanted people to have that information up front and know that we are certainly well aware of the relatedness of this conversation to those. So with that, we're going to get into a discussion of waterfowl hunting and women in waterfowl hunting. And Casey, I'm going to go to you first, because unlike Susan and Carla, you didn't grow up hunting. You were of the three we have. You came into waterfowl hunting just recently. And we had, I think I mentioned this on the previous episode, we had Dr. Kevin Ringelman, Dr. John Eady, and two of Kevin's former students that had participated in something they called a university hunt program designed to introduce students to to hunting, waterfowl hunting specifically. And and so they shared with us their stories of how Maddie and Julie, the two students that participated on that episode, shared with us their stories of how they came into waterfowl hunting through that program, why they came into waterfowl hunting and, uh, and what it was like for them. So Casey, this is your opportunity to kind of share some of that, that same thought process and those same experiences. And so I guess the first question is, did you have an opportunity to be introduced to waterfowl hunting through any of those organized university hunt programs? I'm not sure if there's one currently active at Colorado State, but um, so as part of your response, just share some, share some of that with us. Yeah, so there there is a brand new hunt program at Colorado State um, that Dave Coons has set up. And so I did actually get to go on the inaugural hunt for that. Um, I was planning on just kind of being there as a as a helper because I had actually hunted a few times before that. But it turned out it was my first goose hunt and it was one of the better hunts that I think anyone <laughs> would have ever experienced. It was like a nice foggy day and just hundreds and hundreds of geese came into our decoys. Um, and we got a limit uh, with, of, I think, six or seven people within uh, an hour and a half. It was amazing. Um, so I did get to participate in that. And they, there were so many birds that they said, even though this isn't your first hunt, go ahead and shoot if you want to. Uh, but I actually did start hunting about a year or two before that. When I started my master's, I guess, yeah, it would have been two or three years before that. Uh, I was, you know, getting into the waterfowl field and realizing that as I went to conferences and as I met people in the field, one of their first questions out of their mouth was almost always, do you hunt? And I, I kind of felt a little bit left out saying no. And I wanted to have something to be able to, to talk to people about. And, and also I was just in, getting more interested in, you know, where my food comes from, um, harvesting things sustainably and locally, et cetera. And I decided to, you know, get my hunter safety. And it also happened to be right around the same time I started dating my now fiance, uh, who was instrumental in this whole process. He did grow up hunting and was um, really into waterfowl hunting when he did his master's in Texas. So uh, as soon as I got that hunter safety, we went on on our first couple hunts. And, uh, you know, a year later, we got a, a black lab and um, the rest is kind of history. It's been, it's been a really interesting kind of, uh, evolution of just learning the diff the processes. And 
I actually, um, I started deer hunting as well throughout in the last couple of years. And I've really enjoyed that here in Colorado, just kind of scampering through the mountains. Um, sometimes I, I do enjoy it a little bit more than duck hunting. I have to say, <laughs> just because <laughs> we get some cold mornings out here last year, opening day was 18 degrees in, in October. So it's a little bit, a little rough. Um, but yeah, there's, I, I don't think I could have done it without a mentor, especially as an adult coming into it there, there were so many obstacles, just learning about guns and what kind of gun would be best for me and shooting. And, uh, you know, especially getting a dog has been, has made a huge difference. Susan, a question for you now. Casey referenced on the previous episode, her experiences and how it's difficult to break into waterfowling. As a waterfowler myself, I can certainly appreciate that. But the question here is, do you think the difficulty of getting into waterfowling is a bit greater for women? And if so, what are some of the most important steps that can be taken to overcome those challenges and difficulties as you've kind of experienced them and as you might see them? Yeah, I, I do think there's some some challenges there. I mean, there is some stigma that a, a lot of times, you know, hunting, particularly in these groups, um, there's a little bit of a, a paradigm shift of what that looks like in, in the hunting arena. But I think that's happening as we see, you know, one of the fastest growing groups of hunters is women. Um, and as more families are approaching it, I think that's an important thing as well. But when you're already an adult, um, it is challenging. So uh, we also have a our own sort of version of a, a university hunt program. And most of the time it's females. And when you talk to the, the, the young women in that, it's guys sometimes don't get or they get more often just the invites where women sometimes don't get those invites. And then there's levels of even that confidence thing that we talked about, you know, going out there and doing something really different, especially if that ends up being where you're working with the people who um, may be your, you know, in your career path. Um, sometimes that's a little awkward while you're trying to learn that that could be intimidating. Um, and so I think these these hunt programs at the university level are tremendous places for women to get that experience. The challenge with that, though, is the, the persistence of it. Bringing women in one experience is great, but that's not enough to make a hunter. Now, if um, especially for waterfowl, because it's very gear intensive, you know, by the time it, it can be very gear intensive, at least the way a lot of times we see it um, portrayed, there's all these decoys, there could be boats, there's these layout blinds, there's, you know, all these different things. And those could be obstacles um, that, that people see in terms of entering and entering that world. Um, so I, I do think for women, it can be more challenging. Um, but there is also now, I think, a lot more programs designed for women, which I think there's there's a lot of potential there for that to be um, a barrier we're breaking down. Susan, I want to follow up with you on on a couple of things there. The first one being, as a as a guy, I waterfowl hunt. I have waterfowl hunted for twenty plus years. I I enjoy hunting by myself as much as I do hunting with a group of people. Do you think that differs between men and women? Do you think? Do you know, do you, and do you know of other women that enjoy hunting by themselves as much as they do with groups? Is there some, just kind of, is there some social difference there between men and women in res with respect to how they like to hunt? 
I think that could be the case. Um, I think it depends on what you're hunting. Um, and because I grew up doing it with my dad and his, his cohort of friends, and I saw that um, it was a real opportunity, you know, to spend time together enjoying the outdoors. You know, the jokes that were made, a lot of times I don't remember what we got on any given day, um, but I remember some of the jokes about the dogs or the goofy things we did, you know, when it was early morning, as Casey says, you know, it's really cold some of these mornings, the things you do to stay warm, you know, um, those type things stand out a lot. Um, that being said, when I deer hunt, I do a lot of deer hunting, at least historically, very much individually, you know, where you might sit in a tree stand and that's maybe more of a, a lone sport, if you would. Um, though some of the other things that I've done with mule deer and, um, spot and stock type things, that's sometimes nice to have a team in that way. But, um, yes, I think that the camaraderie is probably a big piece that helps women, um, to, to enjoy it because they see it as that opportunity to share the outdoors together. What about women hunting with men or women hunting with women? Is there any, is that going to be just sort of an individual preference type thing? Yeah, I, I think that probably is an individual preference. Um, I don't know. Maybe others can speak to that. I, you know, I've hunted with, with men and women, um, though admittedly most of my life has been predominantly with men um, because I grew up kind of that way. And, you know, my husband and I do a lot uh, together hunting. Um, and so I've hunted less with women. There were also less women to hunt with as I've progressed through my hunting phase until now where my little girl comes along and hunts. Um, the only other person in terms of women that sort of hunted with me was my sister. So that was kind of my exposure to, um, you know, women hunting with me was, um, was just my sister, just very family oriented. Casey, I want you to ask, answer that question. Then I've got something for Carla. I do think it's pretty individually, individual based, <clears throat> but I will say I've gone on a couple all, all women hunts at this point, and they've been some of the more memorable ones just because it's, it's with my, my own friends rather than with people I'm trying to learn from and, uh, you know, have as a mentor kind of. And I, f I feel like that's kind of a rare event with among female waterfowlers. Um, and I also felt like, you know, when we're all going after a same group of birds, there's a, a little bit better communication among all, all the women that are out there. Um, that might just be those individuals, but I won't make any generaliza generalizations. Carla, my question for you is, who's the better shot, you or Jim? Oh, Jim is for sure. <laughs> there's no is question it? there. <laughs> but I, but I, that is, that does lead me to a serious question. I, I want to, I want to hear a story about from one of you about how when you were the better shot than than one of the men that you were hunting with and how that may have how how they may have reacted or maybe I could say this another way how important is it to your confidence to be able to to be a, a decent shot when when hunting with men um, I, I can start for sure because I'm not a great shot and, and I am the first to admit it and usually the, as soon as I get into the blind I tell the people I'm with <laughs> I am a lousy shot, so please back me up and do not be afraid to back me up. It's the first thing I say. So, yeah, I think because I know I'm not great, but but then I, speak, I admit it up front and I'm not trying to be something I'm not. Um, and But I have on occasion had some pretty amazing shots and the guys I'm with are super encouraging and, you know, and they'll bring it up, you know, years later. 
So they've always been really encouraging. I'm, I might be able to follow that up with um, my sister. So I'm, I'm a perfectly average shot. Some days I'm terrible. Some days I surprise myself, but I'm probably a pretty average um, in, in terms of abilities of my shooting. But my sister is amazing and has been from when she was young. And so when she started hunting and when she was 12 in, in Pennsylvania is when you can hunt, um, she had a chance to go out and on a really good dove field. And one of my dad's buddies had been out there for probably four hours already and was struggling. I don't know how many boxes of shells he went through. My sister shows up and an hour and a half later has her 12 doves and, um, and he was still struggling. Um, and so he came over and he ended up making her an award out of it all. And, and it was really great. He, he gave her a, um, a hand carved, um, dove that he had made and for her and saying, wow, this is amazing. Um, I'm mildly embarrassed by it, but this is, this is amazing. And so she got quite the recognition out of the group as being dead eye, you know? Um, and so it was very, as Carla indicated, very encouraging. And that's an awesome story. Carla, I will say that the way you proclaim your lack of shooting skill upon entering the blind is usually either the way I do it for myself or the way one of my shooting partners will do it on behalf of me. So I'm with you on that. <laughs> Carla, I want to stay with you for this question. You're, you are obviously in Canada and we have some differences in society between Canada and the U.S. And, and maybe and there are actually even some of those trends, some of those differences are reflected in the trends we see in, uh, in the number of hunters, number of waterfowl hunters in Canada versus the States. They're actually declining in both the U.S. and, and in Canada, but the decline has been a bit more long-term and a bit more steep in Canada. So this question of hunting and conservation, do you have to be a hunter to be a conservationist? I certainly don't think that's the case. I want to get your, your thought on that. But then also the idea of being able to relate to our hunter constituency as, as a wetland and waterfowl conservation organization and the importance for all of us, not just women, but men and women to be able to relate to this important hunter constituency. Uh, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. And, and you're right, Mike, the, you know, there is uh, quite a difference between Canada and the U.S. when it comes to waterfowling. Um, you know, as you pointed out, the number of waterfowl hunters is substantially less in Canada, and it has been um, undergoing a steep decline for a number of decades, actually. You know, when I try to think about like why, I mean, it, there really is, it's a different culture, at least, you know, my experience has been is that, uh, you know, waterfowl hunting, particularly in the southern U.S., it's almost a lifestyle, like people are living it almost 12 months of the year. If you aren't duck hunting, you're getting ready to go duck hunting. And in Canada, it's just not like that. It's just not like that. You know, people, this, particularly people that live on the prairies, you know, it's, it often is, uh, yeah, they might go out a couple of weekends, a few weekends during the, during the season, but it's not something that they focus you know, the entire year on. And, you know, why? Well, I mean, we have great access. I mean, the number of hunt clubs in Canada is tiny, right? There's hardly any. There's a few in Manitoba. There's a few in Southern Ontario, a few in Quebec, but it's nothing like it is in the, in the U.S. And, and I don't know if that has 
part of part of the reason why, but it's it's just it's just approached very differently in Canada than the U.S. And you know, your second question about do you need to be a hunter to be a conservationist? Well, I don't believe so, but what I do think is important is it's really important that people who are interested in conservation understand how much hunters have helped support the conservation effort, whether through their direct purchase of, you know, hunting licenses and stamps or their personal, you know, personal donations and commitment to the cause. Um, And that's something I always like to talk about. And and a lot of people who are non-hunters don't understand that. They don't understand and they find it odd that somebody can be a hunter and still want to contribute to conservation. And they, it takes them a while to sort of figure that out. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, over the last five, six years, we've had, we've hired a number of uh, younger women uh, biologists, and many of them had never hunted. And uh, a few of them last fall, they recognized, just like you were talking about, Mike, they were recognize, they recognized that they wanted to understand that connection between hunting and conservation. And so uh, a number of them went out on their first hunt last fall and really to try to understand that psyche and to try to have that experience so that they could relate to our supporters. Casey, as as the one of the the three women on this call that that did not grow up hunting kind of came into this late in your um well early in your adulthood let's just let's say what advice would you give to other women that are in in your position and that would be in the position that Carla just described young biologists women biologists that had never hunted but they under wanting to understand that connection between hunting and and what motivates those hunters to be such active participants in conservation or that women that just want to try out hunting for any other reason you talked about wanting to understand and know where your food is coming from the locavore movement as we as we've heard talked about over the past few years what advice would you give women that are interested in trying their hand at hunting, whether it be waterfowl hunting or any other type of hunting? I think uh, nowadays there are so many programs in place just for that purpose. There's becoming an outdoor woman. <clears throat> There's uh, field to fork, which, it, you know, these aren't all waterfowl focused, um, but there are even specific mentoring programs within duck hunting, you know, clubs or organizations um, and I really do think finding a mentor, trying it out with somebody who already has all the gear that we talked about, uh, can be invaluable because you get the full experience without having to kind of struggle your way through it on your own at first. And, you know, if you have that one amazing experience, that might be enough to kind of keep you in there, retain you as a, as a hunter into the future. Um, so really trying to seek out those programs or those people who, who can be that mentor for you is the most valuable thing you can do if you want to get into it, I think. What about, I might say psychologically, I know there the, the idea of killing an animal is something that's very difficult for non-hunters, especially I would imagine it's, it's a it's something that's more difficult to overcome as you've 
it's when you first start entertaining that idea as an adult, as it is, as opposed as opposed to as opposed to maybe when you are younger and you're following the direction of your your sibling or your father or mother in the in the blind or in the field. But when you are a, a young adult and you're able to process information to a in a more cerebral manner than let's say you are younger. Is there some other psychological aspect of this that you kind of have to overcome the idea of killing an animal at that at that you know at that stage of your of your life? And how would you kind of advise thinking about that? Is there anything that you that comes to mind in that regard? I actually had a really hard time with that when I first started. I I definitely was not a good as good a shot as I should have been, and I crippled a bunch of birds when I first started out. And we didn't have a dog; we were in really thick vegetation, and they just got away immediately. Um, and it was almost enough to completely discourage me. It was like four or five birds in a row, and I was just done. And uh, you know, it only then took one or two good successes to to go back and say, "Oh, I can do this." It, it's again kind of that confidence thing. You <clears throat> making sure that you are prepared enough and and can actually be a good enough shot to to find the mark. It, I think is especially important when you're first starting out, just so that you you don't have those bad experiences that can then discourage you. Um, and I think again that is where a good mentor kind of comes in to who will keep encouraging you and you know maybe take the bird to to finish it off if you do cripple it or. Um, kind of ease you into that because, and I'm also, I think that's kind of where the food aspect came in for me. I'm really, really into cooking and, and food in general and kind of being able to, I don't know, give thanks to the, to the animal that you've harvested by preparing it in an incredible way was really helpful for me to seeing, you know, the whole process and being okay with the fact that I, I took this animal's life because I'm, I'm doing the best that I can with it. That that message there resonates immensely with me. We have uh, we live here in West Tennessee, and we have uh, we have a small uh, small piece of property here. Uh, but the other night, my wife and I had a meal that included venison, which th- the deer was actually taken from the back part of our property. I processed the deer on our property. Um, I processed the meat here in the kitchen, and then the vegetables that we had were grown in our garden. So. Every aspect, with exception of a few spices and maybe some fat that I added to the venison when it was being processed, every aspect of that meal was derived, you know, not just by our own hands, but by the very piece of property that we are on right now. And and so we actually take a great deal of pride in every aspect of that, but also in a little bit of the habitat management that we do on on this on our land here. Um, so that to me the other night kind of really emphasized exactly what you were saying, Casey, the idea of really being able to appreciate where the food came from and recognizing what it took to to make that that happen. And Casey, you also mentioned in your response the important, and we've done it several times, the importance of a of a mentor. And because of the demographics of the waterfowling field right now, mostly men, predominantly men, most of the mentors that you're going to have access to are going to be men. So we've, uh, Casey, I asked you about advice for women wanting to get into waterfowling or any other kind of hunting. I think it's equally important to talk about advice for men in serving a role in, in helping 
make this possible, more possible and more welcoming for women that are interested in participating in hunting as, as equal participants in this conservation, in that aspect of conservation. So Susan, what would you say, what advice would you give to men in terms of mentorship or in terms of creating welcoming environments for women to participate in hunting? Um, I think some of that roots back to even my, my childhood where, you know, my dad had two daughters and his, his hunting buddies welcomed us right into the, into the group. Um, you know, you see that commonly done with, with sons, um, you know, and, you know, even if mom doesn't hunt, that shouldn't be a barrier for a young, you know, a, a little girl to, to break in and, and go out there. And so I encourage hunters to, to welcome, you know, the children, both the, the, the boys and the girls into their, their hunts. Um, I think that that's a, an important first step. Um, and as we talked about, it's been a gateway, not only in my hunting, but also a gateway in my professional approaches is to see that that's a welcoming environment and um, it's not something that's, that's gender specific. Um, in addition to that, you know, if you're going to reach out as a hunter and be a mentor, don't just ask the, the neighbor, you know, father and son, ask the family. Um, you know, we're seeing, as has already been addressed, a lot more women are interested in the food aspects um, and something more to that hunting than, um, and in many cases, you know, women just need that invitation. And so invite the family. Don't make it something that is just limited to the, the fathers and sons. Um, I think that's a really important step that's going to help, you know, break down some barriers. For you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. We're the next generation of hunters. Susan was just talking about the, the, the inviting the entire family hunting, and I want to want to dial into that a, a bit. Let's suppose there's a there are some some women listening to this this episode, and they get the idea that they want to 
they want to go hunting and their husband hunts. And then they ask their husband, express an interest to their husband in going hunting. What advice do you give to the husband in regard to that? Uh, in, in terms of making that environment more welcoming for the wife, this might be a tricky question. But, <laughs> but <laughs> what, uh, what advice do you give to the men with when their wives ask about going hunting? Because I think it's really important. You know, for as Susan was talking about the invite the entire family. I don't know if there's any research out there that has looked at the the, the retention rate of of young hunters in families where both the the husband and wife hunted versus just the um, just the husband. But it seems to me that if the entire family hunts, then there's a stronger chance that the that that the kids are going to actually grow up and be hunters when they become adults. So, from that perspective, if the wife indicates an interest in hunting to the husband, what should the husband say? <laughs> Well, I hope that would be encouraging, number one, you know, but circling back to Susan's point, I mean, I think the first thing is just, um, you know, extending that invitation. Don't always assume that the, the woman doesn't want to go hunting, you know, that that often is the case is that the the wife or woman or girl doesn't get invited because they just assume that they don't want to go. Well, don't make that assumption because they might want to go. And if they do want to go, you know, really encourage them, um, be supportive while they're out there. And maybe the first time they go, maybe they don't want to shoot. That's okay. Just let them come out and experience it and see it and feel it uh, so that they become more comfortable with it. And then they most likely are going to want to shoot. So, you know, just make it a welcoming and supportive experience for them. I think that's a really important point, uh, Carla, about not putting pressure on on women when they're in the blind or even young people when they're in the blind when we're trying to recruit new hunters. Just let them enjoy the experience first off and not put that pressure on them, on them because then it becomes uh, an, uh, uh, an experience that they're not that they don't remember terribly fondly, and that's not what we want. So, uh, Susan, anything to add to that? I think that point is incredibly um, critical about just going along. You know, so much of the hunt is emphasized uh, a lot of times in in how it's portrayed to everyone, the public, about the harvest. You know, the the the, the kill, if you would. And it, it's not that. It's being there. There was a tremendous article when I was a child. I think the author was Mary Loveless in a Duck, Ducks Unlimited magazine that was about being there. It's the preparation of it. It's the whole process of it. Um, and I started hunting. I actually was, I was 10 years old when I started going along with my dad. And in Pennsylvania, you can't hunt, you can't pull the trigger until you're 12. So I spent two years just tagging along two years, never pulling the trigger. And as a result, in fact, my sister started hunting um, when she could pull the trigger, basically. And we we have gone a little bit different paths in our growth as hunters because of that. Um, you know, I'm much more comfortable going out and just sitting there and I might carry a gun, but most of the time it's the being there because that's what hunting was for me from the very first time I did it. And I, I think that's something that a lot of times women want to come along. They may not want to, to pull that trigger. And I know a few people who would go along with their husbands. They don't actually carry a gun, but they want to be out there. They want to be a, along on that. And, and that's, that's an important part of this, um, you know, bringing women into hunting. I have an interesting story in that regard. My wife does not hunt. Uh, she did, she has gone hunting with me before, as you described there, Susan. And one of the times that she went hunting 
was the day that I killed two banded Drake Mallards. So she's a good luck charm. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to convince her to go back, and I haven't killed a banded duck since. So there's probably some connection there, and I, I need to take care of that issue. The other thing that I will say is I have to have to acknowledge that this is not just about wives in uh, wanting to go hunting with their husbands. It's also about girlfriends wanting to go hunting with their boyfriends. So I want to make sure we, we point that out. Or fiancés, in, as in the case with, uh, with Casey. And there may be others out there. So thank you for that discussion about, water, uh, about, about women in waterfowl hunting. We could talk about that subject uh, a great deal more if we wanted to. But we have a few other questions that we need to get to. And we're going to transition back to sort of a work environment discussion. And the previous episode touched on a lot of your experiences being a woman in the waterfowl profession, some of the successes that have been achieved uh, by each of you individually, as well as uh, within our field more, more generally. But I do know there are some ongoing initiatives within the natural resources community to promote, to promote gender diversity within our field. I've actually seen an article here recently that talks about how um, the natural resources field, the outdoor industry more broadly, really does lag behind other aspects of society in our gender diversity and other aspects of diversity and inclusion as well. So within the waterfowl profession, we can start here and, and y'all can we can branch out as we want to. Uh, and I guess, Susan, I'll start with you. What are some of the ongoing initiatives within the waterfowl community uh, to promote gender diversity? Can we can we identify some of those? Probably the the one that particularly Casey and I and Carla can all um, discuss is most recently as part of the North American Duck Symposium. Um, women in the waterfowl have started to join together and actually had a special session on women in waterfowl and addressing some issues about things like implicit bias, where you know we might not recognize some of the biases we have. That's gender or any kind of diversity sort of things there. Um, talking about some of these topics of mentoring um, and and helping to, to promote sort of these next steps of where are we at even with, with um, gender diversity within the profession. And that group has really launched off with, I mean, that was what, at least from my perspective, the most well-attended session um, at that mm-hmm. symposium. I mean, it was sit on the floor only kind of space. Um, but it's opening up doors of everyone having this discussion about what can we do to promote women, not just getting into the field, but I think the one of the biggest topics is, and, and Casey addressed this a little bit in our previous episode, is, is keeping them there, keeping them on, among the ranks, helping them to be successful, feel like they belong, and even promote into fantastic leaderships like we have with, with Carla, you know, where we have women um, – being leaders in this profession. And, you know, we don't see a lot of that um, right now, but I think that there's momentum um, from a group like that that's, you know, trying to address those issues. And there were a lot of men in the room in, room who said, what can we do? How, how can we help? And that that's what we need. Other um, organizations and societies like the Wildlife Society has had, you know, women in wildlife group. And there's a variety of different organizations that have those, those type entities. But specifically, I think that this group um, 
through the through the Duck Symposium is going to be uh, an instrumental group. We are continuing to meet regularly, um, working on some uh, papers on you know the history of women and waterfowl, um, trying to get a survey of you know maybe what are reasons why women. We see a lot in the um, in the college level um, in terms of women, but we don't necessarily see them joining the ranks or staying in the ranks. And so trying to address those issues and finding solutions to, to help them be successful is sort of some of the next things we're tackling. Carla, you're in a great position to add to this, to this very question here and where Susan left off there about how do we keep women? We see a lot of women in, uh, in undergraduate and graduate programs, an increasing percentage but we don't necessarily see that translate into a growing percentage of women in the professional workplace. Or they may enter the professional workplace, but we are, we lack the ability or for some reason we're not able to retain them in this profession throughout their career at, at a rate similar to the way we're seeing them come into the, um, into the graduate and undergraduate levels. For a person in your position, CEO of, a, of, of the wetland conservation organization nationwide in Canada, and someone that I know is a strong proponent of gender diversity uh, in, in this profession. What types of things are you thinking about? Is your organization thinking about and do you think could be applied more broadly to help ensure we're able to retain women in our, in our profession? Well, I think besides the obvious one of you know mentorship and certainly helping um, employees develop within their careers. Um, one of the other ones, uh, is just flexibility in thinking. So, uh, childcare is a big one when you're, when you're thinking about female young, particularly young female employees. So in, in Canada, uh, paternity leave is for a full year. So when someone uh, goes on paternity leave, you're losing them for a year. And some people might see that as a drawback, but I think you can see it as an opportunity because having that space uh, vacant for a year gives you an opportunity for another staff person to take on some additional duties and for professional development for them. And, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, I have, I'm thinking of four professional women in our organization right now that have juggled having, having kids during their career. And, you know, one of the things that we often hear people say is if you want something done, find a busy person. Um, now I don't have kids, so I don't know how they do it, but they are some of the most productive people we have on staff, you know, because they know how to juggle many things. They just know how to do it all and uh, do an amazing job. So, you know, it's just making the workplace welcoming to, to women. Carla, one of the most memorable comments that you made, it might not have been, I guess it probably was at that session um, at, the, at the Duck Symposium where we discussed women, uh, women in this profession. S- someone asked about you know, how we can do better minimizing the occurrence of instances of overt or or sort of subliminal sexual harassment because that we have to be honest that still exists and your response to that was and I think you were just speaking within your organization is that there's 
there will be zero tolerance. There has to be a zero tolerance policy. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, so over the last couple of years, um, we have instituted a respectful workplace training within Ducks Unlimited Canada, both for our staff and our board. And uh, we have for a number of years, even before that, really had a zero tolerance of any kind of harassment, sexual or otherwise. And, you know, we've let people go because of it. And, you know, it's been, I guess, um, I guess pretty rewarding in some ways in that the decisions to uh, exit these people was done by uh, other male employees. They were the ones that stepped up and said, I'm not tolerating this. There was no excuses. There was no defending it. They were like, this has got to stop. And they were the ones that stepped in and uh, took the actions that needed to be done. Casey, you're, you are the, the youngest on, the, on this episode. You're the earliest in your career. You have the longest runway ahead of you with respect to working in this field. And you just heard two of the uh, women that are leaders in this field talk about, uh, give their thoughts on um, on how we can improve the environment for women and, uh, and make it more welcoming. How does, does that give you confidence? Does that give you hope? How does that make you feel to hear these two powerful women in, in positions of such strong leadership uh, make those statements? It's, it gives me a lot of hope. And I, I am confident that the, a lot of the women that are at the stage of their career, the, the same career stage as me, um, have role models to look up to now in some of these positions of leadership. And the more we talk about this, the more there are both informal and formal structures in place to, to support diverse people in general. And, um, to retain them in the field. I mean, a lot of these programs that are being put into place benefit everybody, not just the, those minority groups. And, um, yeah, I think there's, you know, especially skills programs, things we don't really necessarily think about all that often, like negotiation skills or making salaries transparent, um, at higher, higher levels, you know, those can really have an impact on how far, women especially are able to get in a, in a particular agency and, uh, you know, with childcare, I'm 28, I'm, (laughs) you know, starting to think about that. And it's definitely not something I've decided, but if I do go the academic route, there are, um, there are huge things that I worry about. I mean, just, you know, you're measured, your success is measured by your publication record in academia. And there are some pretty strong research that there's huge discrepancies in those measures of productivity. Um, like, you know, there's an H index and measures, you know, different paper metrics, um, and publication metrics. And oftentimes parental leave or gaps in productivity are not taken into account in those. And so there's lots of different structural things that can be, uh, we can focus on to kind of narrow that gap. And I think those conversations are starting to happen for sure. Susan, 
you you're you're a person that has actually faced the challenges, the very challenges that Casey just described. And and in fact, I'll let our listeners in on a little secret here. Susan is joining us from her home today. In the previous episode, she joined us from her office, but she's joining us from home today. And in the background, occasionally we will see we will see her two year old daughter kind of go bounding by. So this is another example where she's having to juggle uh, those those responsibilities of being being a mother as well as her professional responsibilities. So given what Casey just described, some of her concerns, have you had to deal with those? And, and how, is, how have you kind of processed that and dealt with it? There's a lot we could unpack about this. Um, it's a journey. And it's some days you feel like you're really on top of the world and other days you're just happy you got yourself dressed. Um, you know, it, it can be it can be a struggle. Um this COVID situation has had it where it's a real, real juggling. Um, you know, we haven't had real consistent childcare since March, um, you know, and so that's been unique. But I think Carla hit something on the head that's that's very true about, you know, busy people and whatnot. Um, I have gotten, I was very good before I had my daughter at juggling a lot of things. Um, I operated at very high efficiencies. Um, in some ways, I have actually increased that efficiency in other ways, eh, it's not been pretty, but um, I think you have to be gentle on yourself and on each other in this process. Um, there's a transition when you start going into parenthood and 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 juggling that, and and, and it happens for men and women. Um, it's just very different depending on things. Um, I went into motherhood thinking I could maybe beat some of the biology of it, um, you know, and turns out even as a biologist, I I had that naive thought. Um, but mothers play a very important role in their children's lives, um, and as a result, as I mentioned earlier, I couldn't do a lot of things without without my husband. Um, you know, my little girl goes with me everywhere, and some of you that were at the, the duck conference, if anyone was at that, my parents actually traveled so my little girl could be there because I can't leave for a week when she was, you know, um, young. I couldn't leave for a week without her being there. So we we need each other. And that's an important part of it. When I go to the field, my whole family goes to the field. Um, and I'm fortunate I have a husband whose job has that flexibility. I'm fortunate I have supportive parents who will come from Pennsylvania to North Dakota and then to Winnipeg or wherever to help facilitate that. I've been su- um, fortunate to have colleagues who have allowed me to take my little girl to a remote field camp. Um, she went to the Hudson Bay, flew in a helicopter, saw polar bears, got to hold snow geese while we were banding them. Um, it takes it takes everyone stepping back and realizing we are juggling a lot, but we still can contribute through that. Um, I actually had my most productive year, Casey. Um, I had I was a co-author on nine publications the year my little girl was born. Um, which was a big year for me. Um, I've yet to have that again, um, but that was that was really important. My publication rate's been actually higher in general, um, but a lot of it's surrounding myself with good people, preparing and recognizing, you know, a lot of publications happen well before the actual time that that happens. You have to queue things up. Um, and it's about, like I said, having an open mind about how things will come together and realistic. Um, and I've been really fortunate um, to have a lot of support. I only had, technically I was supposed to have six weeks of um, maternity leave. I ended up having to go back at five to help teach some stuff because no one could teach for me where I'm at. Um, but I had been so productive. I had a very flexible chair who said, hey, you know, you're doing your thing. As long as your teaching is covered, you know, keep keep up the good work. And, you know, and I managed to do things sometimes at odd hours. Um, my students talk about me emailing at three in the morning. Sometimes that happens. Um, but you roll with what you got. Um, and so 
it's very possible, um, but it takes everybody, everybody working together as a village and everyone being supportive. And don't assume just because someone becomes a mom or a dad for that matter, that that's going to change their commitment. Um, I'm more committed than ever to, to the profession, to the future. Um, and I have a little girl now who I want to see all of that. Um, and so that makes a really, and I want her to be surrounded by women like Carla and Casey as examples, whether she becomes a waterfall biologist or anything, I don't care, but I want her to be around strong women. And I'm really encouraged by currently, you know, some of those people that are out there. So I don't know if I exactly addressed your question, Mike, but like I said, there's a lot to unpack in this. Will you adopt me? Yeah, <laughs> you, you more than addressed my question. And I thank you for all of that. Casey, hopefully that was good news for you, hearing all of that great advice and insight from, uh, from Susan. We, we talked a few minutes ago about some of these other support groups or, or these, these initiatives that are underway to promote gender diversity, talk about gender diversity in the workplace. For people that may not be aware of those that are listening to this, that want to learn more about them, do you have some information, some the names of some of those those entities, places online, websites, or something where that, that people could where people could find some of those? Uh, yeah, there's uh, one of the big ones is becoming an outdoor woman, and that uh, goes for all sorts of outdoor activities, in, including hunting. And let's see, I, I'm sure you can just Google becoming an outdoor woman and it should be pretty, pretty high up there on the list. But there's also, I know in Georgia specifically, they do something called field to fork and that's, uh, that's focused on deer hunting. And they, you, they start you off with, I think a crossbow to kind of make it a little bit more accessible. Some people are not quite comfortable with guns getting into hunting. Um, and it sounds like it's had really incredible success. They advertise at their local farmer's market. Um, and I think that's becoming kind of the, the paradigm of this you know, hunter recruitment world. Those are the two main ones I can think of right off the top of my head. What about the Wildlife Society? I'm thinking of our, our professional societies. Is there anything active within the Wildlife Society related to women in wildlife or something of that nature? Yeah, there's the Wildlife Society has been really active in all of this for, for several years now. They've got the Women of Wildlife group and at their conferences, they have, uh, you know, social mixers as well as formal symposia to talk about some of these issues. They've also got a student development group that talks a lot about issues along these lines, as well as um, a diversity working group. I don't remember the exact name of it, but they, they're they really focused on recruiting diverse people and um, making sure those people are successful. Thank you for sharing that, Casey. We're going to start wrapping this up now. We could could go on for another hour with questions. I know some of us have things we need to get to. We all have things we need to get to. And so I have a couple of final questions for uh, for each of you. The first goes back to something that I that I asked in the context of of hunting, but but now we want to I want to pose this question more broadly. We've we've given each of you opportunities to talk about. Uh, to give advice to young women uh, with respect to any of these topics. But I think it's equally important that we talk about advice for men and our role in this. And as I mentioned, we've talked about this already with respect to hunting, but more broadly within with respect to women in the natural resources profession and workplace. Uh, Carla, let's start with you. Is there any particular piece of advice that you would like to give men 
to help move us forward in a more progressive way with, with respect to gender equality, gender diversity in our profession and in society in general? You know, I think we've touched on much of it during the course of these podcasts, but really to be supportive, to be a mentor, be encouraging, uh, and just give women the opportunities to to do different things. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, many of the mentors, all of the main mentors in my life have been men, and they've given me amazing opportunities and pushed me and encouraged me to reach for goals that I may not have done on my own. And, uh, you know, I really thank them for that. Susan, anything from you? I think that the the uh, main points that Carla said is, you know, stand up and be supportive of women, um, you know, especially those that are standing out in the profession and might need that confidence. Help help them to have that confidence and say, you belong here, even if you don't look like everybody else, you know, in the room. That's an important thing is to, to provide that confidence and, and treat them, you know, as, as an equal or in some cases, they're even maybe out surpassing others. Um, help them to do that. Don't be the one who, who watches inappropriate behavior and sits on the sideline either. Be the person who who says something. Be the person who stands up because it's it's hard for women to sometimes say something. Um, oftentimes, when we say something to a an inappropriate behavior, we're perceived as the one who's whining, you know. And even if it was a meant to be a joke, it it's hard. And Casey even alluded to some of the microaggressions. And you know, you you don't always, as women, know how to best speak up for those, and and still keep. Um, keep sort of the professional mentality that you want people to see you as and not have some kind of bias come out because you spoke out. If men speak up and help support, which sounds like it's happening a lot in Ducks Canada there when there's problems, you know, that that's probably where we're going to get the fastest change and the best change to make sure that it's a positive work environment for everybody. And so I think that's kind of the key thing. And the other I might add is something that was talked about um, in our Women of, of uh, Waterfowl session was recognize your own implicit biases. There's some websites you can go to just Googling um, implicit bias tests. We all have them. We all have. In fact, we would be surprised sometimes if you take those tests, what biases you have, even women, maybe even about other women, Um, you know, take those tests and recognize them so that you can identify when you might actually be maybe contributing to the problem rather than helping the situation. Um, and you might not have originally realized that, but that's a great professional development thing to help encourage women and diversity in general um, is to, to identify those biases. And then Casey, you as the, as the millennial, are you seeing some of these things that, that Carla and Susan are suggesting in terms of men being more supportive? Are you starting to see that happen? Um, and if not, do you just kind of echo that we need we we still need that we still need we still need to do a lot of work in that regard? I am seeing that happen, and I think that has a lot to do with who I'm trying actively to surround myself with. Um, the people I try to look up to as mentors are excellent at recognizing that they have these connections that could be really valuable to an early career person, but especially an early career woman who might not have the the I don't know, connections that they do. And they really act as kind of a sponsor in pushing them forward, um, you know, and actively thinking about that and using some of the tools that Susan talked about uh, there, it's, you know, it goes as far as uh, running a, a 
job announcement or a letter of recommendation through some programs that they have that you can find online to see whether there's any gender bias in there or any discriminatory language at all. And it's super simple to do. And it's, it has a big, it makes a big difference, you know, using words that are typically associated with women versus men. Um, I do see people starting to do that. And I think that's because, you know, as a society, we're, we're having these conversations and really starting to recognize the importance of it. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we're all kind of working towards the same goals. And if folks find that they're stuck on a problem, I don't think it ever hurts to bring in diverse points of view. And, and you know, there are other people that might be able to help that you're just kind of overlooking. Final question to each of you. And Carla, I'll start with you. If you were able to kind of go back and give advice to a younger version of yourself within this realm of within this topic of women in the profession, knowing the challenges that you faced, how you overcame them, what advice would that be that would maybe allow you to do things a bit more efficiently or differently? I mean, you, you are CEO of Ducks Unlimited Canada. So uh, it's like, how much additional advice could you give that would take you in a different direction? I don't know, but I'm going to pose this question to you anyway. Giving my advice to myself, I would say to believe in myself, to be confident, and to enjoy the ride. Because I've had some amazing experiences during my career, and uh, I would just tell myself to enjoy each one of those. Cool. Casey, same question to you. Uh, Yeah, I think just really doing what I want because I... I'm interested in it and caring a little bit less about how other people are perceiving that it would be key. Um, and I think something that I'm still figuring out is kind of defining my own version of success. What, what does success really mean to me? Um, and, you know, figuring out how to best communicate that to the people who are your mentors and who are in the position to get you to that version of success is something that's really valuable to anybody, but especially kind of an early career waterfowler. Thank you. And then the final question here, of course, to Susan, same question to you. Um, I would say make every experience a teachable moment. Reflect on what happened, why it happened, and how it can be repeated if it's good or um, avoid it in the future if it didn't work out as planned. Um, Don't back down on on your goals. Um, you, You will make it. Uh, and then the other piece of advice I'd give myself is surround yourself with people who, uh, who want to see you succeed. Um, Casey mentioned that idea of surrounding yourself with those that want to create a positive environment. Um, and I, I feel strongly that for myself and for others, you know, um, you want to be around those people who are uplifting um, and absolutely don't tolerate anything but respect and don't waste your time on those who, who don't um, really adhere to that. So, um, yeah, that would be my my advice. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. And this has been an incredibly impactful, very important, very exciting conversation. And we greatly appreciate our guest, Dr. Susan ellis Feligi, Dr. Carla Gwynn, and Ms. Casey C. Tash for joining us to share their experiences and insights on this topic. Uh, it's really exciting to think about the progress that we are making in gender equality, gender diversity in this field, but make no mistake, we have much, much farther to go. And this also applies to other traditionally underrepresented groups in our profession. And and I hope we all kind of take pride in the role that we 
can play and the obligation that we have to play in, in helping make these environments more welcoming. And, and in the end, as we've talked about before, it's the right thing to do, but also from the standpoint of, of productivity, creativity, new energy, better outcomes all around. The more diverse we are as a group, the better we end up being. And that's ultimately what we're after. So I hope you all have enjoyed this episode as much as I have. And again, thanks to our three guests for spending a great deal of time with us uh, to discuss these very, very important issues. We extend a very special thanks to our guest on this episode, Dr. Susan Ellis Felici, Dr. Carla Gwynn, and Ms. Casey Tash for extended insight and advice on a very important topic. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does in producing these shows, editing these shows, and then getting them out to you. And then the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for spending it with us. And most importantly, we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.